Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's my awesome joke. What do you get when you drop a piano into a mine shaft? What? A flat minor. Minor, get it? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Rivers Cuomo of the band Weezer. That'll help break the ice. They've got a new album called Everything Will Be All Right in the End, and we'll hear more from Rivers later. Plus, we'll speak with actor Jason Schwartzman about behaving like a jerk in the new movie Listen Up, Philip. Also coming up, contemporary artist Barbara Kruger reflects on her career, Humorous Simon Rich confesses to destroying a family. Tough stuff. And Jack Black and Kyle Gass, a.k.a. comedy rock duo Tenacious D, answer your etiquette questions. At last. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Washington Post editor Ben Bradley, who oversaw coverage of the Watergate scandal, died Tuesday. Jeffrey Fowle is home in Ohio after spending six months in a North Korean prison. Two wildcard teams have made the World Series, the Royals, and the Giants. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Michelle Lance. She is producer of The Frame, a new arts and culture show on KPCC in Los Angeles. Michelle, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Well, I'm going to be talking about this. Wait, is everything okay, Michelle? I'm having trouble hearing you. <laughs> what? What is that? Taylor Swift actually released eight seconds of white noise under the name Track 3, and it topped the Canadian iTunes chart. Number one. <laughs> Wait a second. So is this kind of like, was this intentional, a la like Brian Eno yeah. or some sort of avant-garde? You'd hope so, but apparently the, the UK publication, The Independent, calls it an iTunes glitch, and you can no longer download the song, but it's still number one. She's just that popular that people will download anything with her name on it. Yeah. If you write actual songs for Taylor Swift, I think you were taken down a notch, <laughs> because apparently your hooks aren't why people buy her song. Doesn't matter. I I was reading some uh, tweets and somebody called it, that's her genre is white noise anyway. So it makes uh, sense. You know, it's so mean. But uh, You know what? This is Taylor Swift we're talking about. So this could just be a breakup song about her radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think actually she tweeted some lyrics from her actual track three that we don't know what the name of it is, but are, I heard that you've been out and about with some other girl. So, you know. I prefer you, static. If, <laughs> exactly. Some people might prefer it the original way. All right. Well, it's going to be hard to replicate live no matter what. <laughs> Michelle Lance, <laughs> thanks for the small talk. Thank you so much. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in cocktail form. It's like history is a submarine submerged in an ocean of booze. With a lemon twist periscope. Refreshing. First, the history part. Right around this time, back in 1945, a device was invented that changed the world's kitchens. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Near the end of World War II, the Raytheon Company designed high-tech military gear and cooking devices. The latter was kind of an accident. See, in 1945, a Raytheon engineer named Percy Spencer was trying to improve radar using what's called a magnetron. One night, while working with the thing, he reached in his pocket for a candy bar and discovered it had melted. Intrigued, he scattered popcorn seeds in front of the magnetron. A minute later, they popped. Percy had discovered microwaves from the magnetron cooked food crazy fast. Later that year, Raytheon patented the first industrial microwave oven. They called it the Radar Range. But early ranges didn't sell. Maybe because they were the size of a refrigerator and cost as much as the average American's annual salary. It wasn't till October 55 that rival company Tappan sold the first home model. And another 20 years before every home had to have a microwave. I've made the greatest cooking discovery since fire. The radar range microwave oven operates on ordinary household current. But while today's microwaves are smaller and more convenient, they're also puny compared to Raytheon's original military-grade prototype. Pumping out 3,000 watts of power, it could cook a steak well done in 50 seconds. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Bob McCoy. He is the bar manager 
at the Island Creek Oyster Bar in Boston, home of the microwave range. Bob, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? I actually came up with a cocktail I titled Spencer's Sour in reference to Percy Spencer, who uh, first discovered that microwaves can actually cook food. The guy who carries candy bars around in his pocket. Absolutely, yeah. All right, tell me <laughs> tell me more about the drink. Well, you know, we had a little fun with the candy bar thing. So for the base, I actually used an ounce and a half of chocolate-infused cognac. Clever. Uh, do they really make chocolate-infused cognac? Uh, they didn't, but we actually whipped up some ourselves. Really? How did you do that? A very new technique of what I guess you could probably call uh, the microwave for bartenders. Really? Uh, yeah. What is the name of this gadget? Nothing more than a whipped cream dispenser. Whoa. Yeah, so it's as simple as taking a whipped cream dispenser mm-hmm. and adding your spirit into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you add whatever your flavoring agent uh, you want to use in there as well. Screw the top on, you add your nitrous oxide to it, mm-hmm. and then you release that pressure. Take the lid right off, you strain it out, and you've got an instantaneous infusion on your hands. All right, so we have all these ingredients and components. Well, um, tell me how the, how you would make this. Yeah, so you grab your mixing glass. Uh, you would take our uh, instantaneous infusion, and then we add uh, some demerara syrup, which is basically a raw sugar syrup. Um, okay. And then you have fresh lemon juice. Uh-huh. And, of course, uh, an egg white. I figured this is another great way to be inspired by uh, the microwave by getting our proteins at a quicker speed. Who needs to roast beef? You can just put an egg in your sour. I like that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then you would actually take a Boston shaker and you would dry shake that first. In other words, you would shake it without any ice. This helps to froth and emulsify the egg. Okay. And then you would add your ice and then you would shake it again. Strain that out into whatever cocktail glass if you're choosing, a nice chilled glass. And then we're going to grate a little fresh chocolate right over the top. Wow. And this is called Spencer's... It's called Spencer's Sour. And unlike a microwave, you can stand in front of it without hurting yourself. Usually. So, Rico, I love the idea that something we all have at home uses radar technology. Yeah. Which actually makes sense because mine helps me quickly locate the least healthy thing <laughs> in my kitchen, unerringly. Cheese pockets. <laughs> That's right. Microwave popcorn. It locates it, and it makes me eat it. It's insidious. Yeah. People, you can find all of our drink recipes online in mere seconds. Ooh. They're dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small talk, had a drink. Now, this party needs some music. And here with that is Rivers Cuomo, frontman of the rock band Weezer. Their catchy, soaring hits like Buddy Holly and Beverly Hills have helped them sell around 26 million albums worldwide. Their latest is called Everything Will Be Alright in the End. Here's Rivers to DJ your dinner party. Hi, this is Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. I chose songs that were written and released within the last few years because I figured if I had to talk about them, I'd want to talk about the songs that I'm currently most excited about rather than songs that maybe a long time ago were very important or historically have been very important to me. And then I'm just kind of talking about how I used to feel, maybe how I should feel now, or I wish I felt now, but, I mean, this is where I'm at. (laughs) When I met you in the summer To my heartbeat sound My first pick is a song called Summer by Calvin Harris. I know nothing about him. All I know is this melody is one of the most uplifting things I've ever heard. First time I heard it, I was at my piano kind of jamming along to some music on shuffle on Spotify. That's how I like to get exposed to new music and new chord progressions. And this song came on, and I immediately went out to get three of my friends. And as the melody kept repeating over and over, we all started holding hands and dancing in a circle. It was one of the most joyful moments of my life. I've been playing this song myself on the piano, trying to figure out how it makes me feel so good. The amazing thing, this chorus isn't even a vocal. It's it's all common chords. There's nothing too out there or jazzy. It's it's in a major key. Gosh, I, I, I haven't really been able to pin down what it is about it that makes me feel this way. And maybe that's one of the things I love about it. For my second song, I think I would have everyone sit back down 
uncover a rock somewhere in their soul, to let out a little darker emotions, it's time for a little catharsis. Sia's chandelier. Party girls, don't get hurt, can't feel anything. When will I learn? I push it down, push it down. To me, the song is, is all about the sound of her voice. It's just incredible pain, and her voice is cracking up. It's something you don't hear on, in most pop singers. She's soaring at the top of her range, and at, at the same time, she's able to make these giant leaps. As a singer, I, I've always loved that sort of big, dramatic vocal line when she says, I'm going to swing on a chandelier. It's huge. It's huge feeling. Again, I don't know a heck of a lot about Sia. I know that she's not super young, like she's closer to my age, which is kind of interesting to me. I know that she's written some really big hits for Rihanna, Beyonce. I think she wasn't necessarily known for singing her own songs herself. She certainly is now. Okay, and then we have to end the dinner party on another joyous note of affirmation. So I would put on Alive by Empire of the Sun. I found out about Empire of the Sun when I saw a review of their live show and it included a picture of them wearing these outrageous costumes with headdresses on this elaborate stage set and it looked so insane and completely out of sync with everything that is cool in like alternative rock world that I had to check it out. I wasn't anticipating liking it at all. I just had to hear what it sounded like and I immediately fell completely in love with it. It's so joyful and at the end of the day, I, I couldn't care less what they look like, costumes or headdresses or makeup. Um, growing up, I was a giant Kiss fan, and the truth is, the record I had was Rock and Roll Over, and there wasn't even a clear picture of them in the packaging, so I, I really had no idea what they looked like. I just loved their music. And for me, it's the same thing with Empire of the Sun. They could just be wearing jeans and a t-shirt, and I would love them just as much. I think, um, to test my friends and make sure they're really my friends, I would pick off of Weezer's new album, the least appropriate song for a dinner party. It's called The British Are Coming. This is the night. Can't imagine why people would want to listen to this over dinner. <laughs> it's a song about Paul Revere and his midnight ride. But I know my closest friends who share the same values would really respond to the soaring melody in the chorus and the weirdness of the lyrics, and then, maybe more than anything else, the extreme drama of the extended guitar solo. Dinner Party soundtrack from Rivers Cuomo, frontman of the band Weezer. Their new album is called Everything Will Be Alright in the End. They launch a tour in early November. Alright, we're going to take a break, but coming right up, actor Jason Schwartzman calls me a narcissist, takes mm. one to no one, and Rico puts Kit Kat bars in an oven when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Jack Black and Kyle Gass, a.k.a. Tenacious D, will answer your etiquette questions. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's actor Jason Schwartzman. His first role was as the precocious Max Fisher in the beloved Wes Anderson film Rushmore. Mm. He's a regular in Anderson's films and also starred in David O. Russell's I Heart Huckabees. For three seasons, he played a writer-slash-private investigator in the HBO series Bored to Death. And he's also a musician who now records under the name Coconut Records. This month, he stars in the new movie Listen Up, Philip. 
in which he plays a hotshot young writer whose favorite subject is himself. In this clip, he's meeting up with an ex-girlfriend who arrives late. It's crazy that you're late to me. Can you please, Can we stop talking about 25 minutes I'm waiting, almost 30, it's an insult. Also, I have a really busy day, so now I have less than an hour. Probably not even have time to eat anything. Maybe a grilled cheese for me. I had it the other day, it's disgusting. Is that the new book? Uh, yeah, wasn't sure you noticed or heard. I'm just getting ready. Things are gonna be pretty crazy for me after the release. In fact, this might be the last time I'm home for more than a week at a time for the next eight or possibly nine months. Actually, yeah, definitely. It's just busy. Los Angeles in January, San Francisco, Powell's in Portland, a whole West Coast thing, really. I'm told to expect big things out you there. Sorry, you're That's because I am bragging. So, Jason, is it exhausting or satisfying playing a jerk for an entire movie? Both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that it was uh, exhausting because there was a level of worry, or not worry, but hope that we were doing an okay job of it because, you know, this is an extreme character and definitely don't want to do anything to lighten it up. Yeah. But at the same time, if it's just all one thing, yeah, then one it might maybe lose its effect, if anything. So, and that's one thing when I read the script, I loved it, but I definitely felt that I couldn't, uh, I needed help. Mm. That's what I thought. That was the first thing I thought was I need someone's help to do this. I can't do You need a director to kind of calibrate your yeah. performance. Yeah, I can't, I wouldn't know how to do this. By my, I don't, I wouldn't have the ability or the skill set to Wow. Well, this. then he is a good director because you yeah. seem very comfortable. Good. Well, yeah. No. And then, and then uh, that you know that's exhausting. But is it great? Yeah. Because <laughs> um, you know, at a certain point, you get so into the groove of of being a guy who literally will say anything that's on his mind mm. and doesn't really care about yeah. what you think. Yeah. And that is so unnatural. It was great, and uh, I loved it. Did it bleed into your personal life at all? Well, since doing the movie, mm -hmm. I've had three insane verbal altercations with people. And that's usually not how you... Ever. I've never yeah. had one. Yeah. No. <laughs> so you were inspired had. by... Something was opened. So Philip is a certifiable narcissist. Mm -hmm. His mentor in this movie is also a narcissist. Mm -hmm. These are people who are unable to feel empathy. Um, you work in an industry famously filled with these mm -hmm. types of people. How do you deal with them? Are you drawn to them? Are you pulsed by them. In Hollywood and stuff, you know, it's a culture of um, gathering around someone and we'll take care of this, we'll do that, you do this, we'll get that, do that. And sure. Yes, yes, yes. And um, that can only heighten someone, you can, they can raise your ranking someone on the spectrum. Someone's self-regard, yeah. Yeah, but I've seen people like who can't, who really kind of tune out when it's not about them. That kind of thing. I That's, just tuned out when you said, yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. I was like, wait, he's not answering. I know. My, no, I'm kidding. But I knew, but I knew you were a narcissist <laughs> from the second you made me Come in here. Takes on the no one. I actually Jason. come on your show. Oh, actually, let Jason, why don't you <laughs> ask the question? Answer your question. Why don't you ask no, the questions no. and answer them? Because uh, you're, it's too late. Great. Um, all right. Let me ask you <laughs> one of. Uh, let, let me continue to, to talk yes. about. So here's another interesting thing about this movie. Talking about how unpleasant this character is, you you've become a bit of a specialist in playing characters that mm. are liked despite their questionable behavior. When I was researching this, I, I read a, a Wes Anderson quote. He said that one of the reasons he chose you to play Max Fisher in Rushmore is because you could, quote, retain audience loyalty despite doing all the crummy things Max had to do. Mm. And Alex Ross Perry said the same thing. You have a likability, mm. for lack of a better word. Is this something you knew about before you were an actor, like when you were growing up? Yeah, it was on my resume. <laughs> <laughs> but were your friends no, like uh, were, your, were your friends like Jason? You go tell our parents that we smashed that car window. Oh because no, 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 no. I, I don't. I'm not aware of any likability. I mean, I, I feel like I've got a hate ability, but, <laughs> um, but I think for sure, like, um, like I used to be in a band and I was a drummer, the drummer in my band, and when I've met other drummers, there's like a maybe there's a quality of like wanting to be mm -hmm. jo jovial or, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like bass players are usually more reserved and yeah. quiet. And so if anything, I just, I like talking to people mm -hmm. and I love, you know, I'm enthusiastic about movies and music and stuff. Yeah. So that, I don't know about likable. I just, I'm excited about stuff. That's actually a non-narcissistic quality, being a drummer, I think. Right? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Hopefully. You, you didn't go for lead singer. Though. I didn't yeah. go for lead singer. Yeah. No. Which is usually the role reserved for. But on some level, they're all narcissists because they wanted to be in a band in the first place. They wanted to be on stage. Hey, look at me. Yeah. But again, I feel like everyone's a narcissist. You know, whatever. Well, you would you would know. I mean, I'm just I saying. do know. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. It's not that I would know. I, I'm, I'm quite. I know. The, I know this stuff. Okay. Um, we have two standard questions we yes. ask each of our guests. The first one is, what question 
Are you tired of being asked in interviews? Um, I thought about these questions, so just okay. so you know. All right. It's a funny question to me, which is, do you like music or what, what do you like more, music or movies? For those who don't know, you were also in a band that had some success called Phantom Planet. Yeah. But it's just funny because to me, they're like, they occupy the same place in my body. Mm. You know, they're, they're I want to make music. Like, I want to make movies. Choose, right? Yeah. It just seems like I love both of them so deeply. And I think that's possible. Well, our second question is, tell us something we don't know, and this can be a personal fact about you or a piece of trivia about the world. Trivia-wise, there's a magazine, Mental Floss. I don't know if you know Mental Floss, but Mm -hmm. I love it very much. I love trivia. Okay. And um, the first thing that popped in my brain, and this is no joke, that I I love is, are you aware that from 1999 to 2010, they had the World Sauna Championships? And um, Hanoila, Finland. I, I, did, I was not aware. They, there was what a do me- you have to do? So in Mental Floss years ago, there was a thing about the world's deadliest sports, and I think this was one of them. Hmm. It's, uh, you have to sit in a uh, sauna. It starts at a 230 degrees Whew. Fahrenheit. Wow. And it's, you know, last one in there who can leave <laughs> without, uh, without help. This is and miserable. And you, you have to sit sort of erect like you have to be butt on the seat and arms down like this. You can't hunch over and you can't lay down. You just have to withstand yeah. the heat. It was ended officially because there was a death, unfortunately. Um, wow. someone, someone died and there was another one that was a near death. I wonder what you do to relax if that's your actual job. What do you do on the weekend? Like, do you probably go jump, to a water slide park? <laughs> jump out of an airplane? <laughs> or is, yeah, rehydrate. <laughs> yeah. A water slide park is probably the right move. <laughs> just, well, Jason Schwartzman, cool. thank you so much hey, for coming on the show. can we do show. it again when it's not I, w- as I would rush. love to have you here. Okay, cool. And now you can return to your narcissistic bubble and I'll return to mine too. Yeah, I never um, left. <laughs> I, never I didn't left. even notice you were there. No, it's for me to come here and just be asked a lot of questions and talk about myself. It's truly the best way to spend an <laughs> afternoon. So, All right. Cool. That's what I like to do, too, but I took turns with you this time. Well, Next I, time, I, you can I, interview me. No, thanks. <laughs> so, Rico, it was nice chatting with that actor and doing that thing. You mean Jason Schwartzman and his new movie, Listen Up, Philip? I guess so. What do you think of this new blazer? <laughs> Like, I think it makes my eyes pop. It's kind of like an underrated feature yeah. of mine. Folks, if you want to find out more about Schwartzman or any of our actual guests, you can head to dinnerpartydownload.org. Did you say something? And now, time to eavesdrop. Humorist Simon Rich has written story collections, novels, and some of the funniest stuff in The New Yorker and on Saturday Night Live. Today, we overhear him read from his latest work. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. My name is Simon Rich, and I wrote a book called Spoiled Brats. It's a collection of stories, and I'm going to read to you from one of them. It's called Animals. They buried my wife in a shoebox in Central Park. I like to imagine that her body was treated with a modicum of dignity. But of course, I'll never know. I wasn't invited to the ceremony. Instead, the guests of honor were the students of Homeroom 2K. Her killers. When the children returned from the burial, they drew tributes to my wife in magic marker, halos, wings, and harps. It was hard not to vomit as Miss Hudson taped them up above my cage. I've never seen such tasteless dreck in all my life. Haley, I noticed, was crying as she drew. The irony. It was her responsibility to refill our water bottles last week. Instead, she spent all her free time with Alyssa, practicing a clapping game called Miss Mary Mac. Miss Mary Mac, 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 all dressed in black, black, black. It was that inane chant that provided the score to my wife's final moments. She was dying of thirst, but never cried once. Her body was too dehydrated to produce tears. Pocahontas was her name. My name is Princess Jasmine. I am a male, so this name is humiliating, but I'm aware that my situation could be worse. The other homeroom, 2R, has a guinea pig named Stimpy and an elderly turtle named New Kids on the Block. Pocahontas left me with three sons, and it's for their sake alone that I keep up my struggle. Every weekday morning, I hide my babies under scraps of newspaper. Whenever food and water are scarce, I give them my whole portion. Their names are Big Mac, Whopper, and Mr. T. Mr. T was born with developmental problems. He was so small during infancy that we had to shelter him each night, wrapping our bodies around his shivering frame so that he could fall asleep. 
I've been through a lot. If I lose Mr. T, I'm not sure I'll have the strength to carry on. It's morning now. Soon the gremlins will run in howling, hopped up on Pop-Tarts and primed for violence. For months, I assumed that the school was reserved for juvenile delinquents. But during parent-teacher night, the mink coats and bespoke suits told a different tale. It turns out this school is an elite institution for the children of millionaires. I can hear the nannies muscling their way through the lobby, dragging their little terrors toward my family. The bell clangs harshly. The nightmare begins. What time is it? Jobs time! My fur bristles as Miss Hudson takes out the jobs board. This laminated poster rules my family's existence. I rub my paws impatiently while Miss Hudson assigns the week's tasks. Pencil organizer this week is Dylan. Line leader is Max. Eventually, she gets to the one job that matters. Hamster feeder is... I scan the room. Maybe we'll luck out and get Caitlin. Last month, she gave us double portions. If her name is called again, Mr. T might gain some weight in time for winter. It's while I'm enjoying this fantasy that Miss Hudson clears her throat and, with one little word, sentences my family to death. Simon! My eyes widen with horror. Simon Rich is 2K's class clown, a pudgy, hyperactive boy with some kind of undiagnosed emotional problem. Hamster feeder, he shouts. What you talking about, Willis? The other children laugh hysterically. My God, I think. This is it. This is how it ends. Writer Simon Rich, reading from the story Animals. His new collection, Spoiled Brats, just came out. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download, which is watered and fed by American Public Media. And now for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. And Brendan, Halloween is coming. So oh, I figured... really? I thought that my neighbor had a glow-in-the-dark zombie on his door, you know, <laughs> sure, just for kicks. It's a, it's a subtle <laughs> holiday. Yeah, anyway, it's hard a few, to tell. A few years back, I happened to be in Japan for Halloween, okay. and I learned the most popular candy bar there is Kit Kat. Hmm. My understanding is that it sounds kind of like a Japanese phrase meaning good luck. Anyway, Kit Kats come in flavors there you will never find here, including fruit parfait and soy sauce. That sounds interesting. And last spring, the big fad there was bakeable Kit Kats. As in you put them in the oven. Yes. So last week, food writer Clarissa Way, who writes a lot about Asian food, found bakeable Kit Kats for sale at an Asian market in Los Angeles and wrote about them in LA Weekly. I met her at the market to talk about it. I mean, I think in Asia in general, there's just an obsession with quirky treats and flavors and whatnot. Um, when I went in China, all the potato chips had the weirdest flavors. Anything from, you know, pizza-flavored candy to, you know, squid ink-flavored potatoes. And I think they just have a much more versatile palate. What is the strangest Kit Kat flavor that you have encountered? Definitely the baked Kit Kat bar. So I was taking a couple of people on a food tour here, and when they ate it, they're like, this tastes kind of funky. And then you look in the back, and it's like, oh, you're supposed to put it in the toaster oven. So I think the fact that candy requires an extra step is probably the strangest thing I've ever encountered. How popular did these baked Kit Kats get in Japan? People started lining up for it, and it became so popular, people started baking them into pizzas and selling that for the equivalent of $15. So pretty popular. <laughs> Was there like an aftermarket for... Yeah. So they were going on eBay for about $12 a pack. They're actually normally um, 4 to $5, so it tripled. How do you put Kit Kat into pizza? Was it a dessert pizza or was it like a pepperoni pizza with... It was a mango pizza. So it was a dessert pizza um, with the Kit Kat bars inserted inside. That just brings up more questions. What does a mango pizza taste like? <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a mango pizza. <laughs> it's just weird on top of weird. So in here there are these baked Kit Kats. We're going to go in and buy some. Are they in more than one flavor of baked Kit Kat? The baked Kit Kats come in two flavors, chocolate and pudding. But the one that I bought was pudding. What is pudding flavor? It seems to me that pudding is something to which you put many different flavors. Like a flan. Okay, so maybe vanilla-y, creamy? Yeah, it really just tastes like a, a sugary piece of sugar. <laughs> what could be wrong with that? We're going to go buy some and taste it ourselves. Great. All right, so we have two bags of baked Kit Kats. These are pudding flavor. How do we make these things? Because all of the instructions are in Japanese. So you're going to open them. And there's 13 in each pack. 
and they come individually wrapped. Of course, because if there's one thing I've noticed about Asian packaging, it's like every little portion of it has to be wrapped. Yeah. And so what you want to do is um, set the toaster oven. How hot are we going to bake these at? The back of the package doesn't say the temperature, so I did it at 375. You just randomly hit upon I that? I just randomly decided on that. <laughs> okay, so, um, you want to put four on the pan for two minutes. Can I, can I try one of these just unbaked? Hmm. That's like biting into... Very lightly crunchy cake frosting. Yeah, there's eight grams of sugar per serving. It's ridiculous. I don't. I mean, this isn't so bad. I, when I buy a Kit Kat bar, I'm not buying something for it to, to not be sugary. So you can see the edges kind of browning right now. Oh yeah, and kind of it's, it's bubbling on the edges. You kind of want to get a caramel crust on the top, like golden brown. The idea then, I guess, is that you're taking what is normally a creamy outer coating with a crunchy inside, and you're kind of making the top of it a little crunchy. Crunchy. Yeah, it tastes kind of like a biscuit. But a lot of people think the wafer is what's baking, but there's already a, like a cookie inside. It's not like there's raw dough inside of it and that that is going to like cook up like a cookie inside. No, and it's funny because a lot of the English publications that wrote about this when it came out in March was like, oh, it turns into a wafer, but the wafer is already in there. Don't be fooled by the press. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. So this now it looks kind of like golden brown on the top. It smells like a marshmallow right now. Yeah. A roasted marshmallow. You're now trying to get a piece of this off of the pan with a spatula. <laughs> that The two halves of the Kit Kat bar just separated and they sort of come apart. So now we've got the, the charred candy outside of the Kit Kat as well as the exposed in, inner wafer. Try it though. It is actually really good. Looks are deceiving. <laughs> All right. I'm going to take this other one actually emerged fairly unscathed. Ooh, it's still hot. Oh, wow. That is very sweet. Right? It tastes like a sugar cube. It's, uh, it is. The closest I can come is like a roasted marshmallow, except hardened and a little bit more caramelly. Yeah, and it has kind of a cookie texture to it, which is super interesting because it looks like chocolate, but once you bake it, it turns into a cookie. It's true. It's really good, but I can feel myself slowly developing diabetes as we speak. Yeah, I can't eat more than one half of a Kit Kat because this is intense. Food writer Clarissa Way and Brendan, I look forward to bakeable Skittles. I think if you bake Skittles, you end up with colorful little shirt buttons. <laughs> uh, folks, That's coming up, we chat with artist Barbara Kruger. That's how they make them. We chat with artist Barbara Kruger, and Jack Black gives us a history lesson. Yeah, do you think uh, Napoleon cared about what people thought of his ringtone? He's learned. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll talk about visual art on the radio with the help of celebrated contemporary artist Barbara Kruger. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week are Jack Black and Kyle Gass, a.k.a. Tenacious D, Yes. using naught but their mighty guitars, soaring voices, and penetrating wit they have fashioned hilarious, yet actually masterful operatic rock music since forming in 1994. They also starred in their own movie, The Pick of Destiny, and Jack starred on his own in a few movies no one saw, like School of Rock, King Kong, little stuff. Here's a clip from their song Tribute, wherein they slay a demon with the best song in the world. Needless to say, the beast was stunned. A whip crack went his puppet tail, and the beast was done. He asked us, be you angels? And we said, nay, we are but men. Oh, it is glorious. This weekend, they will rock completely out at their annual rock and comedy fest called Festival Supreme. It takes place at the Shrine Exposition Hall and Grounds in Los Angeles on October 25th. 
Jack, Kyle, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for having us. So we, we asked you here to answer our audience's etiquette questions. Very good move. <laughs> You've come we, to the right place. I know. We suffer from no delusions. You, you are the most famous rock band that exists on earth, so we're not going to pretend you haven't misbehaved on the road. Want to maybe give us maybe a particular moment of bad behavior that leaps to mind? Well, I always go back to the... But I don't want to bore you with the details. Can we even talk about that on public radio? I don't think it's a good idea. But. Or the, okay, so what's the, what's the bougiest situation you found yourself in on the road? Yeah, the bougiest, bougiest, like most bourgeois. Like, are you like Brian Ferry? You have green juice and masseuses, and we we have had a few deep tissue massages, but nothing really bougie. We're we're pretty low maintenance crew. Me and Cage, we keep it real. Yeah, we're, okay. we're still tenacious from the block. <laughs> so you just uh, find a cheap hotel room, smash it up. Well, actually, we try to find the best hotel. <laughs> yeah, we pride ourselves on paying no dues. There we go. <laughs> you know, you guys write funny music, but people make a lot of the fact that you are talented musicians. I'm wondering, in your opinion, who is the funniest non-funny band? Unintentionally funny. Mm. Uh, Creed. 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 <laughs> we uh, we actually have a copy of Scott Stapp's autobiography at our rehearsal space, and before each rehearsal, we just read at random a passage, <laughs> and it's always funny. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Sticks Behind the Music. Oh man, it's pretty magnificent. <laughs> that that was an amazing chapter in that rock. Is, that is a good one. But I should also say that I love Sticks. They were they were my first love. That was the first album I bought was uh, Grand Illusion. But man, the Domo Arigato period is amazing. Oh, Can I yeah. tell you? I saw Sticks on that concert tour. Oh my god! And at the time, I think I was thirteen. I thought it was the best concert ever. It was kind of a melodramatic rock opera with an actual story. Yeah. We saw them. Remember we saw them without the lead guy. What's yeah. his name? Dennis DeYoung. Yeah. And they had yeah. a guy at a spinning keyboard on a hydraulic, and all he did was spin it the entire... <laughs> it was ridiculous. All right. Well, are you guys ready to uh, tell our audience how to behave? Yes. I think so. Well, let's begin then. Our first question comes from Seth in Roosevelt, New Jersey. Seth asks... What should you do if you have a ringtone you really like, but everyone else thinks is really annoying? Captain your own ship. Live by your own rules. March <laughs> to the beat of your own drummer. Why are you so concerned about what other people think? If you like it, you keep it. I have Caribbean rhythm, I believe. Yeah, do you think uh, <laughs> Napoleon cared about what, what people thought of his ringtone? <laughs> I don't. I mean, history is littered with amazing people who didn't care. Play what you want when you want. Yes. All right, here's something from Lake Ozark, Missouri. This is Jeff, and Jeff writes, I play golf with a buddy of mine, and every time he hits one in the woods, he miraculously finds it. I'm not saying he's cheating, but he must hit it so hard it changes logos. Should I call him out or not? Yeah. I try to get some video evidence before I call him out. Now, golf is a, a game of integrity and uh, good sportsmanship, and you have to count your stroke. And if he's not, yeah, bust him on it. That'd be a pretty satisfying bust, though, if you took a picture of his ball before you started playing and then presented <laughs> mm -hmm. the hard, cold evidence when he came in with a bogus ball. Oh, delicious. That's right. So-called <laughs> golf buddy. All right, so our next question comes from Jay in Chicago. Jay writes, I'm of the old school. I was raised to get up and offer my seat to the elderly, women, handicapped folks, etc. when riding on a public bus. However, I've just turned 50 and am old enough to get really uncomfortable standing on my commute. The morning bus is chock full of high school students who I know will not move to give a truly deserving person their seat. Am I a heathen if I don't give up my seat? Mm. So Jay's 50, doesn't want to get up anymore, but he still feels that impulse. Even though they're kids that are not. Yeah, I'd say work through that and just get the hell up, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spread a little kindness. Work the glutes while you're at it. Yeah. Pay it forward. <laughs> Get out yeah. of your seat. It occurs to me, you guys probably travel on a bus, right, when you tour? You're saying they tour on a public bus? You guys tour on a... <laughs> what do you try to save? I'm saying if the tour bus is so filled with groupies that there's only one seat left, which of you gets it? Oh, that's always Kyle. Yeah, that's going to be me. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> much older than Jack. It, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, oh, and yeah. Cage is a never-ending squeal. <laughs> That's Cage's Corner. Guys, please. Uh, I don't travel that well. I need comforts. The, I guess that's your answer, Jay, is stand up. Yeah, Jay, stand up. Um, here is something from Katie in Burbank, California, and Katie writes, Is it impolite to grow a mustache for ironic effect? And if someone has an ironic mustache, is it gauche to acknowledge it? 
or does the irony of it go unspoken? Man, never has more been said about so little. It's just, <laughs> it does remind me of that movie you did where you grew an ironic mustache. Uh, Margot at the wedding. Margot at the wedding. I thought it was a funny bit, though. Thanks for watching that. Also in Bernie, you play, I believe Bernie had a mustache, right? Oh, yeah. That was quite a character motif. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's rude, I think, only to the mustache culture that takes it seriously, like your police officers. Your, I mean, that's the thing. You don't want to... <laughs> off the dudes yeah. that really take a mustache seriously porn stars and police officers it's i'm gonna say i don't know <laughs> that's rude but i do think it's dangerous all right if you're not a police officer keep the ironic mustache inside your face yeah okay so here's our last question and we asked this of all of our guests uh on the etiquette segment the question is what's the most memorable get-together you've been to who what where details please you know, that night at Neil Young's was pretty... Oh, that was a one. That was, that was, was that real? We played this benefit a few years ago, the Bridge School benefit that Neil Young right. does every year. Yeah. Yeah. And the night before, he has everyone come out to his crazy barn house that he's, like, been building slowly for the last 30 years. <laughs> uh -huh. And it looks kind of like a Scooby-Doo mansion. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were just kicking it out by the fire, uh, barbecuing some dogs with uh, Tom York and James Taylor oh and God. Neil Young. And then it's like, what? What, what is Tenacious D doing What's here? What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> this is heaven. <laughs> Why are we? I'm here? picturing that campfire. So are you know that Neil Young plays Harvest, Tom York plays Creep, or something? And then they go to you guys. Like, what was your move there? Oh yeah. Well, we were we weren't really kicking it around the fire, sharing songs. No, we weren't okay. jamming. We were just yeah. talking of life and staring yeah. longingly into the stars. Just trying to pretend that it's no big deal. <laughs> I don't know that that was actually my favorite gathering of all time because I was pretty nervous. Yeah, that's oh. true. You know who throws a good party is uh, Sarah Silverman on the roof. Mm. God, I'm dropping a lot of names in the last five minutes. <laughs> we'll get out of here before you make us totally yeah. jealous. Thank you for telling our audience how to behave. Hey, thanks for having us, it. bro. You can't kill the metal. The metal will live on. Punk Rock tried to kill the metal. But they failed, and they were smites to the ground. Jack Black and Kyle Gass, the minds and fingers and arms and hands behind the band Tenacious D. This weekend, they're having a rock and comedy party, and you're invited. Yay. It's called Festival Supreme. For more information, head to our website. And if you can't make the party, that's cool. Just stay home and focus on what your friends and family are doing wrong. My hobby. And then send us a question about it via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest, Barbara Kruger, is one of the world's most respected contemporary artists, and her art may be among the world's most recognizable. Her early work was featured in the Whitney Biennial, and then in the late 70s and 80s, she hit on a signature style, bold, often political or ironic slogans, sometimes superimposed over black and white photographs. You've likely seen tote bags featuring the white on red phrase, I shop, therefore I am. That's Kruger. She's installed huge rooms full of text in the world's major museums. It's appeared wrapped around public buses, on billboards, and in a recent video work. On November 1st, she'll be honored alongside Quentin Tarantino at the L.A. County Museum of Art's annual Art Plus Film Gala. And Barbara, it is an honor. It's an honor to be here. So let's go back to the beginning. You studied as a young woman under, among others, I understand the photographer Deanne Arbus. Yes. Who's another of my favorite artists. Maybe do you have one thing she imparted to you that maybe you've taken with you in your career that you remember her saying? Not remember her saying, but, oh yes, she actually said to me that I should write more because I talk like Dorothy Parker. <laughs> But, Meaning in the tone of voice or in actually what you said? I, I think, I don't know. I haven't the faintest. I didn't know who Dorothy Parker was when she said that to me. I was a kid. But I, I will say that what I learned from Deanne was to never point a camera at another human being. Which is what she did all the time. That's right. And that seems counterintuitive. That's right. How is that what you learned? Well, because I think that there is a power relationship in... Um, pictures and pointing cameras, and I've tried to make my work about considerations of power. So, you, I mean, do you think that she was on a power trip in some way? Maybe? No, I don't. It's not about being on a power trip. It's the power implicit in the mechanism of pointing and shooting. And it just bothered you? Like, how did you learn that from her, I guess? Because I 
felt that my experience with her, plus my experience of working at magazines for so many years, really taught me about how the body can be objectified and how stereotypes mm. can be solidified. Let me actually ask you about your magazine work, if I may. You started as a graphic designer, and your later work, particularly the photographs and text pieces, obviously draws heavily on that design. It's, it's very clean. It conveys these really bold, direct messages, almost like advertising. What were your reasons to move into the fine art world? Why not stay in graphic design? Well, first of all, I should say I admire designers incredibly. I think they have extraordinary ability to solve lots of visual problems. I think the difference is the client relationship. Mm. A designer has to create the images of someone else's perfection. And an artist can deal with their own possibilities and their own angels and demons. It's basically about being able to do what you want to do, it sounds like. To a degree, yes. And when I was quite young, I really didn't know how to begin to call myself an artist. I have no undergraduate degrees. I felt sort of marginalized in the art world the way Hmm. most young women did. When I was coming up, the art world were 10 white guys in lower Manhattan, so <laughs> things have changed quite a bit. I was, well, actually, the, one of my later questions was going to be, how has the world changed? But that seems like a, a huge change. I, I, I mean, I would think that in some ways the art world has changed for the worse because there's so much more money in it. Mm, no. Um, you know, I am not a nostalgic person. Uh, it was not better back then, whenever back then was. <laughs> to me, these are the good old days, not because they're good, but because we are alive to experience and change them. So, you know, now there are more artists working globally, uh, people of different colors and sexual proclivities and uh, certain marginalities that were never allowed to be calling themselves artists. So it's much better now. Yes, the market has changed the art worlds. That is true. And that's relatively recent. If you don't mind me stepping back into nostalgia mode for just a second, though, you have said that the classic film director Sam Fuller's work had a huge impact on what you do. Make the connection for me between his stuff and yours. I think that his use of black and white, his use of uh, expository text, um, the ridiculous irony in his films, the -the (laughs) over-the-topness. Although it is, you know, I think of him as being like almost unhinged. I don't see your work as being unhinged. It's actually very specific and and measured, it feels like to me. Do you feel like it's over-the-top? No, but I don't think that we necessarily mirror our influences, you know? Mm. I think that there are suggestions made, incremental moments that we might learn from or transform, you know. Sure. Although uh, you you mentioned Sam Fuller using text in his movies. You were very well known for doing exactly the same kind of thing. And actually, in, in researching for this interview, I kind of geeked out and tried to figure out what that font is that you used in a lot of your famed early works, which is something called Futura Bold Oblique, I think it is. Futura Bold Ital, yeah. All right. I also weirdly know that Futura Extra Bold is Stanley Kubrick's favorite font. What is the appeal of that particular font? I liked it. I didn't I barely knew what it was called because I don't have a design background. I never studied design. So I was never a typeface geek or, you know, I just grew up in Newark, New Jersey and then in New York City. And I looked at all the tabloids there when newspapers actually had a presence within our culture in their hard copy form. And, of course, when you look at the headlines, the Daily News, the Post, it was all sans serif, you know. Yeah, Futura does have that kind of tabloidy, no-frills kind of look. Big, thick, chunky, sans serif. So, uh, and I just felt that, you know, I was interested in making work that, quote, reaches out and touches someone, you know. And I think that my my early work, without a doubt, was informed by my job as an editorial designer at Condé Nast. And that job morphed into, with a lot of changes, my work as an artist. I use that fluency, you know. Uh, We ask many of our guests the question, uh, tell us something we don't know. But you are also, um, in addition to being an artist, you're also a a cultural critic. 
And I was wondering, maybe instead of something we don't know, maybe someone we don't know. Is there someone in the art world you'd like to oh. help us to? You know, I never wrote about art. I wrote about movies and television. I, I consider that all art as a film oh, student. Well, me too, which, by the way, is one of the reasons I'm so honored to be honored with Quentin Tarantino, who I think is an amazing artist. And yeah. I've loved his work for decades. I can honestly say, um, in terms of some of his films, that I've sat there and said, I wish I had done that. Really? Really? Which one? Oh, just so so many of them. There, there are moments the the sort of conflation of rich text and dialogue and great imagery and that sort of combo of like brutality and wild humor. I just love it. You know, it's true. I think of your messages as being very serious, but it is often funny. That's really important to me. I mean, you know, humor is a powerful force. I have to say I'm more interested in just laughter than like smiling. More interested in sort of, you know, out and out, what can I say? I've been a Howard Stern fan for, you know, 30 years. Wrote an early article about him for Esquire. You know, Sasha Baron Cohen. All the great comics. There's something so powerful. All that. Artist Barbara Kruger. On November 1st, she will be honored alongside Quentin Tarantino at the L.A. County Museum of Art's annual Art Plus Film Gala. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Thank you for joining us. And if one measly hour of our company isn't enough, you can hear more of us in all kinds of ways. Sure. Like signing up for our weekly newsletter where we give you top-secret behind-the-scenes information about our guests and our show. Mm. You can do that at dinnerpartydownload.org. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram at Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of the Dinner Party Download. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. Our interns are Edward Morales and Christiana Cabal. Engineering assistants came from Daniel Ramirez and Garrett Lang. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks this week to Deborah Vankin and Linda Williamson. And now, before we leave you, it is time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's Dinner Parties. Leon Bridges is a soul and gospel singer from Fort Worth, Texas. This week he released two songs online. Here's one of them. It's called Coming Home. Bon appétit. Baby, baby, baby. I'm coming home to your tender, sweet love. And you're my one and only one. The world needs a bit of taste in my mouth, girl. Only one that I want Wanna be around Wanna be around, girl Wanna be around, girl Ooh, wanna be around To leave it all alone by myself. I don't want nobody else. The world leaves a bit of taste in my mouth, girl. You're the only one that I want. Wanna be Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. Dude, your phone's making a really annoying noise. What? That's my new Taylor Swift ringtone. Oh.